welcome to another Sparks and Honey cultural briefing. My name is Carrera, and today we're going to be talking about culture du jour, and we'll be surfacing a lot of the interesting signals we've been looking at over the last 48 hours. Um, today, I'm joined by Catherine Lin, my co-briefer. On our panel, we've got the finest Sparks and Honey uh, can offer. We've got Brendan Shaughnessy, and we've got uh, Jackie Shacoin here. So we're going to be digging into a lot of exciting cultural content that's been surfacing over the last couple of days, so I want to jump right into it. Quick reminder, we are live, so if you type us a comment online, we've got our moderator here. Uh, we'll answer, we'll, we'll chat you back. Of course, anyone in the audience that wants to jump in, we'd love to hear from you as well. But let's just get into it with one of the biggest pieces of news this week. Um, it's official, Elon Musk owns Twitter now. So we're starting off this conversation to really di dive into maybe what Elon Musk means when he says he's prioritizing uh, free speech and what this might mean for like internet discourse in general. So um, this article comes from The Economist, and we're looking at here how Twitter isn't actually the most attractive business. Uh, it has just two, uh, 200 and 200 around uh, million daily users, which is behind Facebook, which has already been slipping when compared to uh, platforms like TikTok or Snapchat even. Uh, but Elon says that he's not interested in Twitter as a business. He told Ted at a conference earlier, earlier this week, um, he said, I don't care about the economics at all. This is just my strong intuitive sense that having a public platform that is maximally trusted and broadly inclusive is extremely important to the future of civilization. Um, so, so I've got a question for the panel. How do you think we see, um, how do you think that the platform will change now that Elon Musk is interested in free speech? You know, do you think that, uh, what, what do we think is going to happen here? You want to go Hot first? potato over here. <laughs> um, as one of, one proud of 200 million, um, I have no idea. And I don't think anyone does. And that's why we're talking about it. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of change. And I think whether or not he wants to acknowledge that it's, the, the motive for purchasing it, like there is a business incentive and in that he is, we're all talking about it right now. And I do think in some regards, um, we were just talking about this before the briefing started, and that I think that Twitter is a place where a lot of public discourse is still possible and where um, not while certainly it's not all positive, like there is communities and groups and sub areas. Um, I think Reddit is another platform to look into this of how not just Twitter reacts, but how other platforms that are able to sort of capture that um, I think Elon's probably also wanting, again, you look at the areas that he's playing, he's never been sort of looking eye to eye with like the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. So um, I think truly in this world of like information um, being power and being equity and, uh, and being something that he wants to have direct control over, like I do think it is a business play and I'm very curious and anxious about what that means for the platforms and other like it. Yeah. I mean, basically, he's saying that this platform is worth $44 billion. Um, a lot of experts are saying isn't really. It hasn't been able to figure out that, like, ad revenue yet. So it'll be interesting to see if this free speech approach will be the answer. Um, the article highlights that when um, companies like Getter or Parler kind of came into the space of, like, we're free speech, they soon had to put kind of um, the reins on it because it was just inundated with, like, sexually lewd con uh, content and, and racism. So... I'm kind of curious. Um, I have another question for you guys. I was curious if, um, you know, we might, this might be a play that we see um, that billionaires do where it's like, okay, well, maybe this won't make money, but I'm Jeff Bezos and I want to buy the Washington Post. And um, that has a kind of value uh, in, it, in itself. Do you guys have any ideas on that? 
Yeah, I totally think that, like what Brendan said, it is a business plan. It's very intriguing, at least to me, how now free speech is now no longer just a right in itself, but it's a right that someone recognizable gives to you. Mark Zuckerberg is giving you the right to free speech through meta platforms. Now Elon Musk is giving you the right to free speech through Twitter. So it's very intriguing how we're now attaching this very public right to a very public figurehead and how that will evolve as more billionaires may catch on on this tailwind and maybe by other social platforms, maybe they'll make new ones, but it's a very interesting trend to watch. And what does that mean, I guess, for like, you think about our clients who, this is not just a social aspect, this is a brand opportunity. You think about like brands like Steakums or Wendy's that have literally built a lot of their online persona around their Twitter profile and around, you know, the Gen Z and millennials that run those profiles as well. So I also wonder like, what's the reaction for a shifting landscape around the platform from a brand perspective? And now that you know, freedom of speech and all of these other variables are in there. What does that mean around the way that your brand behaves in this platform and how you show up and how you navigate this now irregularity or uncertainty around the platform? We have a question from the audience? Yeah, actually, I mean, I, I was going to say, like, you know, um, in terms of Elon Musk on Twitter, right, I thought it's kind of a step back, right, from the sort of Web 3.0 movement, which is more about decentralized and people are, let's say, not trusting government issuing currency and like, you know, central bank, like, printing money and all that, you know, all for, all for the different, like, uh, structural, systematic distrust, and that had, uh, you know, we leaned on some sort of digital platform with the blockchain technology and, you know, kind of democratized the power into, you know, the, to power of many, and I think right now, and I'm not speculating, uh, you know, Elon Musk buying Twitter would sort of uh, undermine our freedom of speech, I, I don't think so. However, we are relying on his personal judgment and, you know, what, what would happen if something happened to Elon, like, personally, like, what's the plan B of that, like, oh, it's a lot of unknowns, you know, yeah. and it's not sort of a systematic approach to, like, more freedom of speech, I would say. Right, instead of decentralizing, it's very tied to this one personality, um, that's an interesting point. So, well, I would, I would maybe, like, we'll take the contrarian perspective and say, like, I'm not necessarily sure anything's going to change that much for the average Twitter user. Um, maybe some people, I think, will threaten to leave the same way that people threaten to leave Spotify, but um, for the people where, like, that's kind of a, a singular platform in terms of what it gets for people. Um, and I don't really think of Elon Musk as someone who has a lot of follow through all the time. Um, so I could see it being something he owns and he leverages when he wants to like make a dent in the market or make ripples, but otherwise like not really dedicating a lot of time to truly changing the infrastructure of the company and how it works. Really? Yeah, either way, I guess we'll be keeping tabs on it to see how it changes or doesn't. So from Twitter to Ukraine, Kat, will you take us through the next signal here? Yeah, for sure. I love this uh, thumbnail, by the way. Um, so Adweek this week published a very special feature called On Ukraine by Ukraine, where they handed over their digital pens over to Ukrainian editors, writers, and artists to really share their experiences about the devastating war in Ukraine. So this particular article um, covers how three Ukrainians in creative uh, industries, so artists, um, creative strategists, so kind of related to our line of work, how they reacted to the war and how they're juggling their time and skills to defend their homeland and their peers. Um, so we've seen some amazing outcomes of their efforts. We've seen, for example, a messaging bot that connects uh, rideshare drivers with evacuees. 
um, agency is going from creating ads to now baking over 150 loaves of bread a day for people in need. Um, and even a hip hop media campaign for a dog shelter in Kyiv, as well as a NFT collection, which is where this image comes from, supporting Zelensky. So even though this article only covers the stories of you know three Ukrainian creatives, it's really inspiring to see how um, creative problem solving is really coming to light during a really challenging time. So my question for the panel is, um, because creative problem solving can really flourish during times of stress, um, for brands, how can they reach that level of creativity and innovation without necessarily having to experience something as challenging as war? Man, I mean, this is a, a question we've been getting from a lot of our clients. And it, I mean, if you think about the number of major moments that have shaped our generation in the last, like, three years, it's unbelievable. And it's unbelievable to have to think about how a brand reacts in times of these huge moments, right? And so, like, in some instances, it feels silly for a brand to, to send a brief that says, what do we need to do uh, about Ukraine? And ultimately, I think that's, like, part of our job as marketers and as part of brand people is, is finding a way to do that in a way that's sincere and genuine and is not about the end goal of the brand, but is about the end goal of actually lifting up people that are affected most in those situations. So I think in this instance, this is a really great example of, um, at least for me, it's great to not see a brand in the headline or in the write-up. I'm much more focused on what is the way in which we're creating infrastructure or visibility or access to those, um, in this case, the Ukrainian uh, creatives that are, that are being uh, a part of this system. So um, I think that is like the focal point for me is as a brand, how do we not necessarily remove ourselves from this conversation, but insert ourselves in a way that we're actually being helpful and bringing clarity and bringing pathways of, uh, of, of things that are going to continue to help Ukraine as a nation, um, despite all the conflict that they're dealing with and, and remove ourselves as a brand sponsor as part of that. Right. The focus on creatives feels really powerful, and we really get to see how creative minds work in struggle and scarcity. You know, there's that, like, design theory that when you design for a very specific use case, you actually end up designing for um, a wide variety of people. So when we think of, like, voice-to-text that was designed um, for people with disabilities, but... I use it. Everyone uses voice-to-text now. It's become kind of like the cornerstone of uh, new innovations in the market. So to look at this story, it's almost like, yeah, what will come out of um, this necessity that we know breeds um, invention? Corey, do you have uh, something to add? I think one of the other things to think about is, um, you know, you brought up an interesting question, Catherine, about how to recreate it. And this idea of, uh, if you're in the corporate world, manufactured disruption. And I think maybe one of the tactics that can be deployed more often is the idea of scenario planning, war gaming, to your point, um, uh, Carrera, to think about maybe what are extreme scenarios that I want to try to artificially navigate as an organization to, to then problem solve and create solutions around could be an interesting sort of way to bring back some, some I wouldn't call them older, but more traditional um, strategic practices that we can you know, use to, to recreate some of these high-stress situations and, and ideate new and more revelatory rather than evolutionary-based solutions. When you say that, what pops into my head is, like, the Sparks and Honey war game, and we have some type of, like, card game that gives you situations, and then you, like, innovate around it. Terry, I don't know. Um, okay, um, so we'll move on to our next signal now. Kat, do you want to take us through... What's going on here? Yeah, so also related to design in a way. Um, from this press release from Business Wire, we see that a wellness brand called Modern Age, they have actually unveiled a holistic treatment that controls how you age, um, which you can experience through telehealth. We can also go to their um, in-person studio at the Flatiron Building for those that are 
here or tuning in from New York. So their treatment is actually founded upon the idea of subjective age, which I didn't know about until I read this. It's how old you actually feel versus whatever number is written you know, on your driver's license or your passport. Um, and so when you arrive for your treatment experience at the studio, you're met with a clinical team where they work with you to understand your wellness goals, um, including fitness, you know, how you eat, all that good stuff. And then they also help you prescribe supplements, medications, and treatments for your bone health, your skin, your hair, um, your hormones as well. So all together, it's designed to approach aging in a very holistic way, in a very proactive way, um, with the goals of lowering your subjective age. So it makes you feel younger, even if the, you know, the number is actually climbing. So how do we see wellness destinations like Modern Ages Studio interacting with traditional healthcare systems, where clinics and doctor's offices um, kind of have that lead in where you go for wellness treatments? Any thoughts from the audience, the panel? just have to say subjective age has definitely come up as a concept by someone who is objectively old. <laughs> you. No, it's not me. I, oh. it's me. I'm saying, whoever it is that came up with the concept of them feeling younger is like, okay, you must be old. Okay, got I it. like the idea of subjective age, and I think it speaks to like the power of mental health over physical health in terms of like if you give in to feeling like you know your health is out of your control, then yeah, maybe it will be. But at the same time, I think, in my personal experience, I think there's a lot of friction between like the holistic healthcare, holistic wellness, and traditional healthcare, and a lot of that holistic approach is like seems very unbased in science. And then like until there's a real connection between the two, I think that like this is always going to just be something that like people with the money to spend will invest in. Um, but, it, I mean, you don't have to be old to get sick. I love your question. It's the bottom line. <laughs> I love the question around, like, where is this going to be in terms of, like, the future destinations around healthcare? And so, like, when I think of, like, pharmacies, this might be, like, the first ever wellness destination from a premium perspective, but, like, we're learning so much about how things like gut health or cognitive development or sleep, all of these things are very much connected to, like, the way that we can turn back the clock in different ways. And so the way that I see that whether that's through like D to C brands that are popping up and filling this void that healthcare providers haven't done, or are these destinations from a lower end perspective able to get themselves into like the likes of Dwayne Reed or CVS? Like that's a really interesting way that I think that yes, there is a premium way that feels a little bit eye rolly to this, but like there's a lot of different ways that we can think about aging and anti-aging through products, through you know consumables, through wearables that are going to be reacting to our body's different ailments and um, providing us recommendations. I want to hear from Devray. What do you got? I think just overall the market is, is starting to lean into like age positive initiatives. So this to me is a little, you know, respective, respective, respectfully, like I think it's a little dated and antiquated. I think that, you know, especially people in, in a position of uh, educating a consumer should, you know, really lean into helping them embrace the inevitable. We're all getting, we're all getting older. We're all going out the same exit door, like, I think that fighting against that is just counterintuitive in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and that kind of goes with uh, a comment that we have from Daisy Kelly, which um, 
she asks, um, how do we marry this trend of, like, wellness and aging and, like, how do we understand it in the realm of, like, positivity and body positivity? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's interesting to think about if you move that lens from objective wellness to subjective wellness, like, does that become, like, more of a positive, body positive experience because it has more to do with how you feel rather than, like, how people perceive you as old? Or, like, is that, like, a more, like, instinctual or even a more insidious way to, like, dig deeper into someone's insecurity about their aging. Mm. That's a really good point. I, I think you can also see it uh, from the perspective of quality of life, right? Because subjective age is also a, a measure of your overall health compared to your biological age, right? And when you look at sort of bigger metrics like healthy life expectancy, right? Uh, versus life expectancy, right? That gap is pretty meaningful when you when you become, you know, when you're old, right? In the sense that, you know, I think in the United States, the, the, the gap is uh, at least a few years, like, you know, I think it's about six to eight years. Um, and that means that that's six to eight years that the average person lives kind of miserably, you know, towards the end of life, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In other countries, uh, you know, that gap is, is shorter, right? Meaning that you your life expectancy tends to be healthier, right? And, and, I, and, I, and I wonder if we look at it from this point of view, if subjective age uh, does not become sort of a, uh, another sort of measure of inequality, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and like, like the Gini index, right? But the, the subjective age index, right? In the, in the sense that it signals when a country or a society has their shit together, uh, and then therefore you live as long as you can, healthy years, versus when the healthcare system is all disconnected and privatized and so on and so forth and, and, and you don't get the outcome, right, that, 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 you, that you could get, right? And uh, so it could be an interesting, because uh, I agree with Debra, it could be, you know, also be seen as a dated concept and, a, and, and superficial. But it could also have pretty meaningful ramifications for how we think about healthcare. Right. Terry, did you have something you wanted to add? I can add it really quickly. We had a conversation this morning with a, a doctor from Mount Sinai, and one of the things that he talked about is, he wasn't talking on this topic specifically, but the reframing of age. Because to Camilla's point, you have biological age, and then you have variables that you can adjust over time. And so mm -hmm. what he was suggesting is that really this concept of age is dynamic in nature. And genomics are fixed. That Right now we can't manipulate them. But your microbiome and the colonies that we have on our skin, in our stomach, in our mouth, wherever those are, can be calibrated at time, uh, over time. And if they're dynamic in nature and we calibrate them, then that can change, I mean, many different health-related uh, outcomes. And so you may feel 10 years younger if you have a healthy biome. And so maybe it's a reframing of the way we think about age right, and aging. Right. I think what I'm taking from this too is that wellness is a destination, it's a motivation and people are traveling and they're going out of their way more for wellness experiences and maybe this is a signal for like um, hotels to pay attention to. If you offer like a site specific uh, Norwegian type facial or treatment, people are more and more likely to come. Um, but I want to talk about Coachella, specifically the vibe shift. If anybody remembers, maybe a couple months ago, there was this article from The Cut that went absolutely viral. It was this prediction that the vibe shift in youth culture was turning towards a more, like, scrappy, um, nihilistic. The words that were used specifically were feral club rat, which means, like, people that just go out and, like, they don't care if their makeup smudged, they're sweating in the club. Um, the other word being indie sleaze. Um, and this 
uh, writer of this article for the New York Times went to Coachella and said she didn't really see that vibe there. She actually saw a lot of positivity, a lot of people talking about joy um, and being very carefree. So I have a question for the panel. Um, how do we, as cultural strategists, as trend forecasters, kind of make sense of all these articles that get posted, all these trend directions that that's, uh, seemingly conflict? So, like, we'll read one article that says, like, Gen Z's nihilistic. They don't want to go out. They're depressed. And then the next one will be like, they're joyful. They're out there. And the other one was like, well, actually, they're not drinking at all. They're drinking green juice with adaptogens. Jackie, do you have any thoughts? Well, I think, first of all, a lot of these things conflict because Gen Z is a massive and massively diverse group of people. So no one label or description is going to fit all of them. Um, but I think there is a sort of, I mean, there's also this element of like maybe, maybe the people who can afford to go to Coachella, there's a natural reason why maybe they're a little bit less burdened by the darkness of what's going on in society. But at the same time, they're also really young. And I think like seeing them experience joy in a young way, and I don't think indie sleaze also is necessarily, or the like, like is it necessarily tied to a sense of nihilism? I think it's just a sort of like un, a loosening from the sort of standards of behavior, of feeling like you have to be a certain way, you have to, you know, like, maybe you're moving out of your parents' house, you're finally kind of, like, becoming an adult. And, like, they're just experiencing young adulthood the same way that all the rest of us kind of got to do pre-pandemic, like, when we were growing up before a global pandemic. I feel like millennials have taken the word vibe and turned it into, like, the boomer equivalent of, like, synergy and synergize. <laughs> and we've done too much with it, and we need to let it go. Um, I would love to do a... I, I, your point is dead on. It's like, of course, the people that are attending a privileged uh, concert in uh, California are going to be, like, happier off than those that are, like, struggling and, you know, talking about their mental health and reports around, like, record-high mental health reports. So it's like, I would love to do, like, a report on the future of vibes and, like, what our sources are for vibes because, like, the way that we use that as a source of, like, indicators to mark an entire generation, to Jackie's point, is... Uh, seems a little bit short-sighted, I suppose. So let's all agree today, uh, rest in peace to moods and vibes alike. Um, and we'll tell you what we're replacing it with next time on Sparks and Honey. <laughs> I think also there is an element of like, we're not really affording them this like ability to be complex when we talk about it this way, where like, just because they're having a good time at Coachella doesn't mean they're not depressed or suffer from anxiety. Um, you know, I think a lot of the numbers about their mental health come from like their just comfort talking about it and admitting it. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's 100% of their life is being sad or feeling like they have to think about, you know, the, every, every, bad thing that's going on in the world. They, they're allowed to disengage and have fun. No, I, I totally agree, Jackie. And I think one of the most important things is that it's not just Gen Z that's being apologetic or experiencing depression and then having fun some other times. Every other generation has had their moments of joy. We've had Woodstock and all these other great events. <laughs> we, okay, <laughs> aging myself or not aging myself. Um, but it's just that now that we have more ways to share that, we have social media, we have like, you know, 
photos are now so easy to take. It's just now that we're able to capture those nuances more versus previous generations that might have been written more privately or not shared with your friends. So it's just a combination of evolving, um, evolving ways of documenting life, how we view taboos. That's kind of making Gen Z seem like we're, we're new, we're the most feely nihilistic, but really it's just a combination of a variety of factors, in my opinion. Well, if you guys will allow me a large vibe shift, we're going to go from Coachella to gender disparity among construction workers in San Francisco. Um, perfect segue. Uh, so in San Francisco and nationally, women make up only 10% of the construction force, and this became a problem for the construction team planning to build a new stadium for SF's baseball team, the Giants. So in order to champion steps towards gender parity, the Giants partnered with CityBuild and their construction um, industry organization that brings women in into um, the industry. Uh, the program is called Mission Rock Academy, and they're trying to up the numbers uh, of the workforce to 15% women in the next few years. And they talk about a lot about some of the reasons why um, it's difficult to get women into the field. For one thing, childcare for any gender, actually, they say, is a huge barrier. You know, where will your child be while you're at work is a huge issue. Other barriers range from transportation access to the need for expensive tools. And then there's this general difficulty around, like, attending a five week training program. Not everyone has the ability to stop their paid job to do free training. So this program is free. It gives stipends and it's really interested in getting women into these workforces. So my question to the panel is when it comes to the makers of media or the leaders of companies, even the coders of tech platforms, we've seen on the briefing, we've seen in culture that these places greatly benefit from a diversity of perspectives. You know, we see different solutions being proposed that maybe other people wouldn't have thought of. But when it comes to the constructors of buildings, is it immediately clear what diversity does uh, and to, to benefit the outcomes? Does anyone have thoughts on this? Um, I think what's most interesting to me about this signal is that it's from a baseball team. Um, the majority of fans, um, even talking about, like, ownership and management, um, from a from an organizational standpoint, um, they all look they're all pretty old white dudes. Um, I think it's one of, of all of the major sports, um, the fewest number of black owners, uh, management, front office. Um, that goes to I think there's only one woman um, that is in a position within like general management too. So I think I love the idea of thinking of design in general as a place where if we're going to change the way that we operate and change the people that our supporters and fans of ours, like we have to think about everything from the design of our physical infrastructure, the way that we incorporate people, the way that we invite them in. Um, and yeah, like I, that, that can be any position. So I think the construction workers is a unique example, but like Major League Baseball and construction workers and all of these other areas that are highly oversaturated um, and, and, miss, uh, and missing a huge mark, whether that's uh, black, Latinx, you know, female, whatever that might be, um, requires some pretty dramatic retraining, reskilling, and rethinking of the way that they hire. Right. Specific to baseball, still, I believe the Giants are the only, one of, if not the only team that has a female Marlins, assistant. I believe. That's the general manager. Oh, coach. Yeah. <laughs> they have an assistant You can see the two people that watch <laughs> baseball at Sparks and Honey right here. The, I love it. They have an assistant coach who's a woman. Yes. Um, who's not super visible, um, like to, you know, just viewers watching the game. But I think that maybe that is like a sort of meaningful tie-in because I think in a vacuum, yes, it's great. Women can and should be construction workers. And I'm sure there are many that 
who are um, already, but if what they're, I think it, it also kind of like, with this specifically, like if what they're building isn't also designed with either by women or with women in mind, I feel like it, it doesn't really translate to a ton of long-term meaning besides being like, a, you know, some kind of like plaque inside the stadium that's like. Right, or maybe if the outcomes aren't immediate, immediately um, thinkable, there might still be these unthinkable moments that happen on site where you know, people bring their perspective and they think of a solution to the way cement is being poured or the way a steel beam is being hoisted up that maybe other people haven't just because they, you know, this is a new perspective. Moving on, Kat, will you take us through our next signal about the battery passport? Yeah, so going from construction to cars, um, this signal from Reuters covers how there's an alliance of three German car makers, and to not butcher any pronunciation, I'm just going to say that BMW is one of them. Um, they're going to develop a battery passport for electric vehicles, which is something I'm personally excited about because moving to New York, I drove an electric car and went shut up about it. Um, so this would allow car owners to see the composition of a car battery. So, for example, you could see which metals were in it, which minerals were in it, and, you know, to what degree, how much of it is made of recycled raw material. And um, the reason this battery passport is now really coming into play, it's in response to a proposal by the EU, where they want to see um, industrial batteries, whether they're in cars or other various forms of transport, um, disclose their carbon footprint starting in 2024, with more specific requirements about battery composition to come by 2030. So what this would look like in practice is that maybe you pop the hood of your car, there's a QR code on the battery, you scan it with your phone, and it pulls up a lot of um, the composition info, carbon footprint, and more. So it really gives you um, the opportunity to really be more close with your car than I guess we ever have been. Um, so my question for the panel and the audience is that because this battery passport is more of an action on the producer side of things, how do we expect European consumers to react to this? Will this finally be a, a shift in the gas versus electric vehicle war that's slowly, very slowly raging? Um, I have a car and I have never once opened the hood and looked at the battery. <laughs> <laughs> so, Maybe it's different in Europe. Culturally, that's a very <laughs> more. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. I mean, I have an electric car, and I like. Why would I? Even if I did that, what would I do? <laughs> I like use the QR code, and it tells me what's in it. But I've already bought the car, right. and the battery is the main part of a, of an electric car, right? I, I'm just trying to think like what would what action would a consumer take with that? Right. Well, we've been talking for a while, this like traceability, transparency, uh, especially with like blockchain technologies that you would know, maybe for other brands like that you can scan in the uh, shopping aisle um, while you're shopping, which is the key point here. Once you have it, it's like, even if it's just like, this battery's terrible, why did you buy this? You're like, I did already. Um, but no, this idea that maybe while you're shopping, you could be scanning products and seeing what the plastic content is or where it was, uh, where it traveled to get to you. Um, Hannah, did you have something? I don't know if that all relates also just the massive battery shortage that we're seeing with the electric vehicle market. And if it is, I think it is a really good example that um, with these big global uncertainty supply chain issues, it's a really great opportunity for brands to lean on, lean to one another as um, support rather than competition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. I think I'm just going to add, and I think that when you talk about electric cars, the, the flip side of it is basically that is the car. 
Like, I mean, the whole car, like a Tesla, for example, the whole car is a, the battery underneath. And so probably just the footprint um, is so important. And, and probably most people are thinking, oh, we're helping the planet. But maybe if we had that information before purchase, it would, it would shift. So, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, Shanti. I mentioned that when I'm walking around New York City, I notice when buildings have the grades outside of like, this is a C building in terms of energy. If this passport was a bit more visible, it could almost be like a climate change competition where you're shaming people and judging people on the highway. <laughs> on I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Corey? Yeah, I'm gonna take a little bit more of a nefarious position on this, and that's around the idea of, I think, supplier relationships. I, I would ask him a question if I'm a company, you know, where, where is a particular ingredient or product that I'm using for my overall sold product coming from? Mm -hmm. If these are not being produced by the manufacturer of the car and they're being outsourced, it puts a lot of downward pressure on suppliers with very little upside because the consortium or the BMW type organization gets the credit, but a supplier has to come through with the, with the proper solution. So. I think there's a lot to unpack if we're, if we're companies around, to your point, about carbon footprints, wh who, which company shoulders the burden of responsibility, and how can they then ultimately also get the benefit of the equity associated with achieving those goals and not have it be white-labeled behind potentially a larger other company. Right. Yeah, potential benefit here, because it's definitely a great move by the EU to bring more transparency to uh, energy storage, right, of which batteries are, are part of it, because the process of, of building one of these batteries that can power a car is incredibly carbon intensive, right? And most consumers who are going to make a decision of whether to buy an electric car versus keep their gas car don't have the necessary information to really understand whether their move is actually going to help or hurt the environment, right? Uh, and maybe it would put also a it's carbon intensive and problematic also in, in other ways, just so the sourcing the sourcing of the materials, etc. And and I think maybe it puts it puts more pressure on the the industry that's focused on carbon sequestration uh, to really speed up sort of technological advancements there because that would be sort of the one way in which you can offset sort of carbon emissions from from making batteries. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm going to throw it to Kat for the final signal of the day, and then we'll do some wrap-ups of what we learned today. But take it away on <laughs> drag, drag brunch. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> we've covered a lot of uh, rather heavy topics today, healthcare, gender disparity, sustainability. So we'll wrap it up on a more fun signal about drag brunch. So Taco Bell um, will actually be starting their drag brunch tour across the U.S. very soon. Um, it'll be starting in May to June, where select locations, or cantinas as they call them, across the country will be rolling out the purple carpet for a fun drag show um, and brunch hosted by drag queen and self-proclaimed taco lover Kay Sadia, uh, where you get to enjoy your breakfast tacos, your coffee, and your mimosas. And for those tuning in um, from New York or in our live studio audience, um, if you would like to live moss and join, uh, join in on a live brunch, It'll be on Sunday, June 12th at the Times Square Taco Bell for those that want to go to Times Square. Um, but regardless of which city you're brunching from, reservations will be required. So that's just a little side note. Um, but logistics aside, this fun idea was the brainchild of Taco Bell's Pride ERG to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community and really celebrate the really uh, key idea to that community of having a safe space where you can be with your um, be with your chosen family in case, you know, 
um, a lot of us think grew up with the privilege of having our identities accepted. So there's also an informative aspect as the It Gets Better project will also be there to show how you can get involved in the Taco Bell Foundation's project of expanding workforce readiness for LGBTQ plus youth, a really important objective. So there's quite a few trends being captured by this signal. We have immersive dining experiences, fostering inclusion, and then the mainstream adoption of drag culture that we've all kind of noticed with the rise of RuPaul's Drag Race and other related shows. So opening up to the panel and the audience, which trend, in your opinion, do you believe is the most potent uh, trend at work here? There's a lot happening for sure. I think one thing that I'm particularly curious about, especially as we're moving closer to Pride Month, is um, how much of these interesting and helpful activations or experiences, again, it kind of comes back to our very first topic around Ukraine. It's like how much of this is actually about you versus the, the community? And in this case, like I would ask Taco Bell, like, is this going to be something that you're going to continue to invest in? Because I think like within the confines of pride and, uh, and supporting those communities, like safe spaces need to exist outside of your singular activations. And that can also exist outside of established cultures um, that are central to the community like drag. Again, I think it's amazing to be introducing that on a wider scale. But I think the, the thing that's going to, the more and more rainbow washing that we continue to see, and I'm not calling this that, I'm just saying, I think we're as a culture getting to a point where we've seen this enough years where it's time to start actually making these things deeper and providing those safe spaces in this case um, outside of the, the moments whenever it's most interesting to do so as a brand is going to be, I think, more and more important. So from a singular trend perspective, I think brand as civil servant comes to mind of like, what is the actual thing that you're seeking to do in supporting communities? And how are you actually living that outside of the, the period of time in the summer when it's sexy and interesting to do so. Yeah. I think you can actually call it that. I think you can just call it rainbow washing. Um, <laughs> not to say that I love Taco Bell. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> but I do think it's interesting when we think about like how Drag Brunch has like really come like this monumentous thing over the past like three years and how much that is like such an intimate space almost for like queer bars and queer spaces to like host these events. So it's interesting to see it kind of I will say co-opted on a very large scale. Mm -hmm. um, I can say, like, I think that there's other things that they could have done that would have been more interesting. But I do think that this is something that when you think about, like, what the essence of rainbow washing is, is, like, you see these things basically taking place in queer spaces and then you co-opt it. Um, it's something that, like, I think is time and time again, like, we're going to see brands, like, have to have, like, these more come-to-Jesus moments about being like, what is it that we can actually achieve, and, like, can we actually do something yeah. that might be more inventive or interesting, and not just something that, like, other, other like, places and spaces have done for, like, a really long time. Terry, and then I want to hear from Devery after. Yeah, I was just, I was going to say, I, I, I mean, I see it as slightly different. I mean, I, I think that, um, I agree with Brendan, that it has to be more than the one-off, so you have to build it into an organization's DNA. But I, for one, get really excited when I see the things that are happening in Florida and the legislation against LGBTQ, and that we have this groundswell that is pushing back the other way. And sometimes those come in small steps. Sometimes they come in big leaps, and I think you need all of them. And I think we need to embrace them many times because we need the tidal wave, especially when I see the kind of policies that are arising across the, the, the globe and even here in the U.S. Debra? 
I agree with that, but I also agree with Brendan and with Christian in terms of, you know, this is very gaudy and flashy and rainbow washing at its finest. Um, I'm always thinking around Pride Month, uh, Pride Month how, or in, and just how organizations, instead of just hopping on a trendy bandwagon, how they can sustain like foundational organizational change and, and sustain it and really implement that in a way that provides a, a real safe space and not it is not a performative thing. And I think like, you know, as a community member myself, this is very, like it scares me because I think it would be anything other than a safe space. It would be something to sort of for, you know, non-community members to, to enter and make a mockery out of something that is meant to be intimate and personal. Right. To your point, the drag brunch crowd, when I walk by drag brunches in Bushwick, usually are white women, um, which is an interesting um, I idea. I would say it, it is interesting that, like, I'm kind of, like, almost, like, in between it, like, yeah. um, like, like calling it, like, distinct rainbow washing or, like, because I do think there is an actual impact when you see a large company like this mm -hmm. do something that is yeah. just so, like, gay. Um, but also, I do think it's it's interesting because, like, even when I think about, like, drag brunch, it is still, like, as much as, like, I think I've been, like, echoing it as, like, a community space and things like that, it is also just generally, like, there's a lot of bridesmaids, there's a lot exactly. of, like, it's, it is just a lot of, like, yeah. typically non-queer or even just, like, just people that are there to, like, take part in that. So it's interesting that, like, this kind of does play a role in between it where it is kind of, like, using drag brunch for its almost, like, somewhat intended purpose, but it is still, like, I guess on a very major level where they could have, like, made a more direct impact or maybe more direct um, uh, a comment or uh, activation against something like, you know, the really, like, uh, oppressive... Uh, uh, things that we're seeing go on in Florida, but um, I would love yeah. to see like complimentary messaging once someone enters or purchases a, a ticket or whatever to the event that allows allies or you know in, intend people who intend to be allies to and, and even community members just sort of to safeguard uh, the venue and the experience, you know, to for people to be sensitive to these performers and understand that you know it's they should tip or they should do this or you know don't cat call and etc you know just to provide like an actual safe space i love that idea like what are the behaviors that we need to correct and instill as part of this to make it actually not just performative but something that we can continue to do at this drag branch at other ones yeah i love that i think that drag has become as important as it is to the community it's also become like a very as it's gotten mainstream it's become a very like safe way for straight people to participate in queer culture and I think this almost feels like a queer event for straight people. And, and that, I think that that's important to, to like bring people in, but at the same time, they have to be doing things that are for the queer community and that feel truly supportive. Like I guess partnering with different projects and things like that, like that's where the impact is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like that's where like as people that are like having conversations about this, like on Twitter or whatever, um, they need to have like the understanding that like that's where that impact is like drag at this point mainstream like like it's it, it is it is as gay as it is straight at this point um, and it's it, I do think that we like when we think about like the actual impact that brands want to have like they need to be able to like take a really hard lens at like what is it that we actually can do and how can we actually just do that totally um, yeah. yeah and all great around. discussion around this for sure yeah. Totally. yeah.
Um, okay, I want to get into wrap-ups. Let's do some just like bullet points. What did we learn? Jackie, pointing at you first. What's one key trend or takeaway you think is worth noting from today's discussion? Um, I think springboarding a lot off of the, the signal about Ukraine and innovation, I think that one key takeaway for me is like that innovation a lot of the time comes from a place of, of profit rather than like solving for true human need. And when we look at like the things that arise that really make a difference, um, you know, like how can we how can we shift our, our innovation thinking to be about around need and not revenue? Brendan, um, what do you think is one consumer trend that brands should be paying attention to just from what we talked about today? Something Jackie was talking about on that um, Coachella signal was uh, people are full of contradictions and we all have ups and downs and escapes that we need. And it connected back to um, a trend that we brought to a client earlier this week around functional escape. Um, and I think that that is a uh, interesting space. I read a Pinterest just had a trend report that went out and one of the interesting in-home insights was that people are thinking about having a wreck-it room and that like it is a place where you go and you just like, you know, office uh, space style, like destroy stuff. And I think the more and more brands can think about balancing those contradictions that we have in ourselves and providing outlets that are functional and addressing the sort of holistic mental aspect of that, um, of those contradictions that exist, um, so that we're not all just all depressed or all deflecting and having fun, uh, but acknowledging the intricacies. Kat, take us home. What's one trend from today that you think will have most impact on the future? Yeah, so we had a really thoughtful conversation around healthcare, right? How we feel versus what we're being told. And I think that has a huge impact just in that uh, consumers are now more equipped to come and prepare to, to say, you know, how they feel, what they want. This is the holistic treatment that they want. So I think that really speaks to a lot of the blurred lines that we'll keep seeing in healthcare, especially as the COVID pandemic really, really shined a light on how um, there are inequities in the system and how sometimes we, we may not be able to trust what we read or see. Great. Well, that'll take us through the whole briefing today. Thanks to everyone who participated. So much conversation from the audience felt so good. Um, if you're interested in learning more about Q, uh, please reach out for a demo. Please continue uh, being active in the, in the chat. We do these briefings every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. We love to keep having you. Uh, but until next time, which will be tomorrow, consider yourselves briefed.